few years back, I, uh, I came across this article, really interesting article, about the ongoing fallout from the Holocaust and particularly the problem of forgiveness. The occasion for this article was a protest of the fact that this German company, uh, some sort of chemical manufacturing company, had been hired to put a protective coat on a monument that some German city was putting up to the dead of the Holocaust, to the victims of the Holocaust. The problem was that somehow they found out that a subsidiary of this chemical company had at one time supplied the gas that killed so many people in the concentration camps during the Holocaust. So the protest was it taints this monument to their memory if, if the company or someone tied to this company was responsible for their death to begin with. The article used this as a launching pad to, to ask some really interesting questions that I hadn't thought about before. What does it look like to forgive for something that had been done 60 years ago? What would it take for Germans and this German company in particular, in light of all the philanthropy it already tried to do to make up for, this, for its past, what would it take to make them forgivable in the eyes of those who suffered through the Holocaust? What, even, if, even if they could do enough to become forgivable, forgivable the other question is what, what would give the right to forgiveness to these descendants of the victims of the Holocaust? So Forgiveness is complicated. It involves things like authority, the right to forgive, and willingness, the willingness to wipe the slate clean. These are the kinds of questions that Mark raises for us in the, uh, in, in the, in the stories we're going to look at this morning in Mark chapter 2. It's all about forgiveness. Mark has been telling us stories about Jesus, trying to present him as the Son of God. To, to, to give evidence for the things that he says about Jesus in chapter 1. He gives a story after story showing, this is why I can tell you that he's the Son of God and his coming is good news for you. Last week, the stories were about authority. They were trying to show that Jesus isn't just another teacher. He isn't just another holy man. He's not just another Moses or prophet. He has an authority that's astonishing. And it's an authority that he uses to heal, to bind up, to almost paradoxically, set free. Today, Mark is, is getting at these same kinds of themes. Who is Jesus? What did Jesus come here to do? And, and again, in these stories, authority is a really important emphasis. The difference here, the angle here, is that it's about authority to forgive. Mark gets at these basic driving questions. Who is Jesus? Jesus' identity. What did Jesus come to do? His mission. By telling us stories that show us two things really, really clearly. Jesus is someone who can forgive sins. That's his identity. He is one who has the authority to forgive. And Jesus came here precisely to forgive sins. He can forgive sins. He came here to, be, to forgive sins. The only question that Mark leaves us with then is, will we be forgiven by Jesus? Before we jump into the stories, let's read the passage together. Would you mind standing with me in honor of God's word as we read from Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. 
And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is God's word. You may be seated. The first story that Mark tells us in chapter 2 is another dramatic story about healing. Not unlike the stories that we looked at last week, but this one, this story about healing comes with a dramatic twist. It becomes a story about the forgiveness of sins. And even more specifically, it becomes a story about who has the right to forgive sins and it becomes a crisis point for the identity of Jesus. According to, to, to Mark's story, Jesus is one who can forgive. As the scene opens, Jesus has just returned to Capernaum. This is where this was going to be his home base for his ministry in Galilee. But, but last week in the stories that we looked at, he had decided because the crowds got so big, he was going to go to the surrounding towns and, and preach there. Now he's back, but word gets out quickly. And even larger crowds surround his home as he preached to them. And that's when these four men show up carrying a paralytic. Now, this is a a story that's probably very familiar to many of us. So familiar that it might be counterproductive. I think we can help to cut through some of that if we enter imaginatively into the shoes of those who carried this man and, and the man himself. Try to imagine what their experience of this event was like. Remember that Jesus, only a few days before, was healing crowds of people at this very same home. They were all gathered in the home and then, and even even outside of the door, so there was no more room. Mark tells us that the whole town was gathered there. So why wasn't this man healed? Why wasn't he healed then? When Jesus rose and 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 left, went out to the wilderness to pray, and then. And just before he left to go to surrounding villages, the disciples had come to him and said, there's more people looking for you. 
presumably, more people who need to be healed. This man could have been among them. He may have been one of those looking for Jesus. And then Jesus left. You can imagine the joy that this man and his friends would have felt when they heard those first rumors that Jesus had come back. That he was back in town. You can imagine maybe they were... Maybe they were, uh, they were suspicious of it. They didn't want to get their hopes up. And then, and then one of them runs into the room and he's heard for sure, Jesus is back. I just saw him. The crowd is down the street at his house. You can almost imagine him saying that. So they, they run to their friend and they grab, it, they grab their stretcher, they throw him on it, and they, they carry him to the house. And by the time they get there, it's already full. It's even more full than before. The way that he describes it here, it sounds like the whole courtyard of the house was even full. Jesus had healed the lepers. He had cast out the demons. Surely he could heal this man too. But now the crowds are so thick that a single person couldn't fight through them, much less four men carrying a stretcher. But these guys, they won't be denied this time. They may have missed out. We don't know. They may have missed out that first time. They're they're not going to miss out this time. So they carry the guy to the top of the roof. Need to know a little bit about houses during this period to make to visualize how this story would make sense. They were usually made out of, I guess, mud-caked walls, pretty light walls that couldn't support much of a roof. Uh, so the roof was pretty light. It had, had cross beams with like a thatch, thatch-like collection of twigs and stuff, sticks, I don't know, that, and then caked in mud to create the covering. And people would use their roofs kind of like a deck because their houses were so probably so, so dank and so, so uh, musty, almost like a, a, an old cellar. Um, and, and they were probably pretty hot because they would use these fires for cooking and for heat and in small, confined space. You can imagine what it would have felt like. So they would, they would use their roofs as a place to hang out and to, to enjoy the cool breeze, maybe to entertain guests. That's what this roof was for. So these guys go up to the top of the roof, flat roof, and they start to hack their way through this mud-like uh, substance. You can almost imagine, it's almost easier to imagine what it would be like for the people who were sitting in the house. They're in there just trying to listen to Jesus talk. He's got this authority that no one else has. They're pretty amazed by it. And all of a sudden, dirt starts to shower down on top of them. You can imagine them almost looking up and seeing a, a small beam of light start to, to show through. Then all of a sudden, it's a, it's a hole, and you see these guys up there digging. And, you, and then, then the stretcher starts to lower its way down. And not surprisingly, Jesus stops whatever he was doing. He turns to them. He looks at them. And here's where the really interesting twist comes. We know that Jesus can heal with a word. He's already done it many times in Mark so far, in the stories Mark's told. These men have gone to all this trouble because they believe that Jesus could heal the man with a word, just as he'd done with the leper, just as he'd done with so many others. And Jesus does speak an authoritative word here, but it's not what they're expecting. Seeing their faith, Jesus speaks with the same tenderness he had spoken with before. He calls the man, my son. He reaches out to him just like he had reached out to the leper, but instead of telling him that he's healed, he says, your sins are forgiven. There's nothing about the story to this point to prepare us for that twist. If anybody was going to be upset by those words, you would think it would be the men who brought, who went to all this trouble to hack through this guy's roof and, and lower their friend down. Or maybe the, the friend who's been paralyzed for who knows how long and was was undoubtedly dying to be set free from his condition. What's all this about forgiveness? But it, it's not them. At least it's not the ones we're told about. It's the scribes who get upset by Jesus' words. 
Jesus knows their hearts before they even say anything. He, he knows now what's going to show itself later on, that they see in Jesus' authority a direct challenge to their own religious authority. But here, here their claim isn't just jealousy. It's not just that they realize Jesus is claiming to do something they know they can't. Jealousy will come up later. Here, they're actually on to something. They see in Jesus' words a claim to an authority that the Old Testament had given to God alone. It's blasphemy, they claim, because who can forgive sins but God? Moses never claimed this authority. When, when Moses saw Israel sinning and in danger of destruction, he interceded for them uh, before God. He didn't claim to forgive them himself. And the Mosaic law that got set up and all the sacrifices and all, and all that stuff, the priests, they would pronounce forgiveness of sins as those designated by God for the purpose in response to sacrifices, but they never claimed to forgive sins, not even the high priest. They pronounced the forgiveness of God. Here, Jesus is claiming to, to forgive sins directly and immediately. The scribes' question makes sense, and their idea is right. Only God can forgive because it is God, first and foremost, against whom all sins are committed. It is God, first and foremost, against whom all sins are committed. There's a reason that the Ten Commandments starts the way it does. It starts with these commands to, that, to, to honor God as the Lord, to have no other God before Him, not to make even an image that might try to depict what He looks like because it, was, it would always fall short and it would be a substitute God. The Ten Commandments start with a, a call to honor God first and foremost. Everything that comes after that, things uh, these, these pronouncements against lying and adultery and coveting and all of that, those all flow out of that first command to honor God above all. When you lie against someone, you're you are sinning against that person, but fundamentally you are lying and disobeying God because there's something you are protecting by lying that is more important to you than God himself. You are protecting an image, perhaps, of yourself before people that you don't want to see compromised if they knew the truth about you. So you lie. You're protecting, you're serving and honoring, you're worshiping that image of yourself. So you've broken the first commandment before you break any others. God is the one against whom all sins are committed. That's the reason that David, after he had Uriah killed, he'd been guilty of murder and adultery, and yet when he cries out in repentance in Psalm 51, he cries out to God and says, against you and you only have I sinned. Jesus is claiming to forgive sins committed against God, and forgiveness can only be granted by the one who was sinned against. That's the only person with that kind of authority. So he is claiming to be God. Jesus' response to the scribes is so insightful. He asks them a question. Which is easier, to say that your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? He knows from the human perspective it's way easier to say your sins are forgiven because there's no way you can falsify that claim. There's no way to know whether or not you, you could make good on that claim or not. But if you say you're, you're healed... Well, you can know immediately whether or not you have that kind of authority. Does the guy walk or not? But what Jesus knows in reality, the, the irony behind his question is that he knows forgiveness is actually infinitely more difficult than to heal this paralytic. It isn't just that the offended party is the only one with the right to forgive. 
That's true. It's also, though, that forgiveness always comes with a cost. It always costs to forgive. We see this in our own experience. If we're going to forgive somebody for something they've done against us, it means we have to eat the bitterness, the anger that we may justly feel against them for what they've done to us. It means treating them as if they haven't done us wrong, as if they haven't offended us. It means sort of wiping that slate clean. It it doesn't necessarily mean that we overlook what they've done to us. It means, though, that we we choose not to treat them as they deserve, right? That's what forgiveness is, not demanding what's owed. In this case, because the sin is against an infinitely holy God, the cost for forgiveness... The reason forgiveness is so much harder than to heal a paralytic. The cost has to be infinitely valuable. The authority that Jesus has to say to this man, your sins are forgiven, is an authority that he bought with his own blood. It cost him his life, an infinitely valuable sacrifice. Forgiveness is harder, Jesus knows, but to show that he has authority, that when he speaks, his words accomplish what they intend to accomplish. He speaks again, and the man is healed. Rise, pick up your bed, and go home immediately, just like the leper, immediately. His infirmity is gone. He leaves, and people marvel. They are amazed at this astonishing, unprecedented authority. Jesus, the point of this story, the whole point of it, is that Jesus can forgive because He is the one sinned against and He is the one who is going to take the cost necessary to offer forgiveness. Jesus can forgive. The next stories show us that not only is He able to forgive, He actually came to forgive. See, you could read this first story and buy it. It establishes Jesus' identity as the one who's able to forgive. You could be amazed by that ability. You could be amazed by his authority. You could even be impressed by his decision to forgive the paralytic. And you could still come away wondering whether or not he would forgive others. You could come away wondering whether or not he would use this authority to forgive you. The ability to forgive is not the same thing as the willingness to forgive, much less the desire to forgive. But this second group of stories in chapter 2 leave us with no doubt about Jesus' desires. Jesus came primarily to give his life as a ransom for many to forgive. This next story begins with another Another narrative of calling, just like the ones that we looked at last week where he, he came across Simon and Andrew fishing and he calls them to himself, tells them to leave everything and follow him. Uh, that's what happens here. He's going back out to the sea. He's doing some teaching. Lots of people are, 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 are coming around him. And he, he comes across this guy named Levi and he calls him. And Levi, just like James and Andrew and Simon, uh, he drops everything on the spot and he follows him. But where that, those earlier stories were mo- mostly about Jesus' authority and its remarkable effects, here the emphasis is on the character of the person that Jesus calls. It's not just that when he speaks, people act, that he has an incredible authority. It is that, but it's not just that. In this case, it's the, the, the remarkable thing is who he chooses to call. Levi, you see, was a tax collector. 
And faithful first century Jews couldn't imagine anything much worse than a tax collector. Now, if you think that the IRS is confusing and something of a ripoff, I'm not going to tell you that you're wrong. But the first century Roman world should give you some perspective on this. Their tax system in the Roman Empire was a complex mess. And it depended on the ground on individuals who were willing to rip off their, fe- their fellow citizens to live at a higher standard. That's how the system worked. The rates that they would charge in taxation were negotiable. They fluctuated, and it depended on how they felt that day. They would negotiate a rate that they would have to give the Roman Empire. That's what they were responsible for. But they could add to that to skim a little bit off the top and make a good living. These guys were making their living by, uh, by selling out their people for a profit. And just as bad as that, they were collaborators with the oppressive imperial regime. They were the ones who made it possible for the Jews to be subjected to this foreign empire. Tax collectors were despised in the way that collaborators or moles or informants have always been despised by the oppressed population, right? Uh, there's been a story about this in the news recently. Maybe you've seen it. The, 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 uh, one of the civil rights era leaders and photographers, a guy named Ernest Withers, is just, he's, he's dead now, but it's just been found out that all those years he was, he was taking pictures of the movement leaders, he was also serving as an informant for the FBI. And there's been grief and anger in the African-American community in response to that guy's betrayal. Maybe more familiar to you are images of what happens when, uh, in, during World War II when the Allies start to move through these parts of Europe that had been under Nazi control. And, and, and once liberated, places like France and, and Holland, they turn on those people among, of their own, turn on their own people who had been collaborators, who had either worked for the Nazis or, or, or informed, uh, gave information to the Nazis or, or done whatever else. You've seen these, probably seen these images in the movies. They shamed them. They sometimes even killed them. These people were despised. And that's, that's the way first century Jews felt about their tax collectors. It was so bad that there were even Jewish laws written specifically for how you should treat tax collectors. Tax collectors weren't allowed to, uh, they, they, they weren't allowed to be witnesses. They couldn't be trusted in court. They weren't allowed to attend synagogue to hear the teaching of the law. In fact, there was even a law uh, written soon after this period where Jews were allowed, they were given permission to lie to tax collectors. Apparently they're less than human. You could lie to your tax collector and get away with it. We've known already in this point in the story that Jesus came to call people to himself, to preach repentance and faith and to seek followers, willing subjects of his kingdom. What's remarkable here and what we see here for the first time is that he seeks a follower among the most visibly, obviously sinful of people. He came, we now see, to call sinners. The account gets even more shocking as it continues to unfold. First, he's just calling Levi. Now we see him at probably Levi's house eating with Levi's buddies, a bunch of more, a bunch more of these tax collectors and sinners. They're just called sinners. I think the only way to take that is that they, they, were, they sinned in ways that were obvious to everybody. That's why you could just call them sinners and not need any other description. These were the people who, if you looked at them in a small-town community like Capernaum, everybody knew who they were, and they knew to stay away or be corrupted themselves. And Jesus is not just talking to them. He's not just calling them to repentance. He's actually eating with them. 
it's, it's really hard for us to imagine today what, it, what the, the, the significance attached to sharing a meal together in this ancient culture. First century, uh, in the first century Roman world, that was a, a symbol of deep and intimate fellowship, of, of, of friendship, of a bond that we don't really have a nice parallel to today. With Jesus, when Jesus decided to eat with them, he scandalized all those who identified themselves based on the boundaries they had worked so hard to draw between them and these people that Jesus is now eating with. The significance of him sharing a meal with this group would have been lost on none of Mark's readers, and they would have found it astonishing. The scribes are scandalized. They're, they're not prepared to confront Jesus directly, but that's going to come later. Here they just go to his disciples and ask, what is he doing? Why? If he hopes to have a successful ministry, would he start it out by calling and, and associating with people like this? Jesus is fellowshipping with the most visibly unrighteous, with those clearly undeserving, and he does so without any precondition. He doesn't demand that they change before he will reach out and touch them. We know he came to preach repentance. We know that sin grieves him, that sin actually cost him his life. We don't expect that he was acting as if these people were okay in their chosen lifestyles. But he didn't make them reform before he would have contact with them. He seeks them and engages them where they are. And this scandalizes those who have defined themselves by their good works and by the clarity of the boundaries that they've set between themselves, the deserving, and others, the undeserving. Jesus didn't come to praise those whose moral effort made them seem most deserving. He came instead to forgive and to redeem those who were indisputably undeserving. His grace is radically countercultural then as now. And his memorable phrase at the end of this story captures his purpose in coming even better, better than, than anyone else could. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, Jesus can forgive sins. He has that authority and that ability, and, he's gonna, and he, he paid for that right with his own blood. What we see here is that he also came to forgive sinners. The question I think we have to leave with the most important question we can ask ourselves confronted with these stories about Jesus is simply, will you be forgiven? Mark's stories make it clear that Jesus has a unique authority that's necessary to give us the only forgiveness that matters in this life and beyond. And the stories show that granting that forgiveness is exactly why he came to earth. The only question then is, will, will we be forgiven? The stories show that any obstacles to our experience of, of Jesus' forgiveness lie not with him, either in his ability or in his willingness, but lie in our own hearts. Forgiveness requires a certain posture from us, and the lack of the experience of forgiveness, I believe, can, can be traced usually to one of two problems. Either we don't think we need forgiveness or we don't think we're forgivable. 
The first problem underestimates the severity of our need of just how bad off we are, just how sinful we are in every part of our lives. That's what it underestimates. The second problem underestimates the amazing power and reach of God's grace. In the couple minutes we have remaining, I want to unpack a little bit more about what I, what I mean here. Chances are you're more like me, and when you, when you struggle to connect with the idea of sin, it isn't because you don't believe it exists. Maybe you do. Maybe it seems outdated to you. But I think more often than not, the people that I meet around here think that there's some sort of, that there is such a thing as wrong, as sin. We see things like the injustice in the, in the sex trafficking of little girls in South Asia, or we see things like, we watch movies like The Shawshank Redemption, and it really gets under our skin, this, this strong injustice. Or we read books like the, the Count of Monte Cristo or something like that. We, we see from, from watching the world around us that something isn't right. We've been mistreated by others, and that, that offends us. What we have trouble doing, perhaps, is connecting with the fact that we, too, are sinners. And I think one of the main reasons is that the default position of our hearts is that we're acceptable to God and to other people because we're good, based on what we do. The default position of our hearts is that we're acceptable to God and to other people because of what we do. There are some telltale signs that this is where you are. Signs that I see in my own life far too often. Have you ever noticed that you're pleased to hear when other people sin? When you hear that others are struggling in a certain area, that there's, there's, there's almost a certain kind of pleasure that you get because it makes you feel like you're better, that you don't struggle in the way that they do, that it reinforces your identity as a good person over against those who, who aren't good? Do you ever see yourself in Jesus' analogy of the Pharisee and the publican? The Pharisee who cries out, thanking God that I'm not like this person over there? Do you, do you ever see yourself there? Maybe it shows, yourself, it shows itself in you when you hear that somebody has a problem with you. Maybe you hear that someone has a poor opinion of you in one area or another or, or recognizes something about yourself that you thought you'd kept hidden. Does that rock your world? When you realize you're not seen by other people in the way that you wanted to be or you thought you were? Chances are, if, if, if that does happen to you, it shows how important perception is in your life and that you're concerned more with the appearance of goodness, that your goodness is defined in part by what other people think of you. It could be that you are what Jesus described as a cup, clean on the outside but dirty on the inside. How do you know if this is you? Well, are you more focused on, your, on the sins of other people than on your own sin? Are you more concerned with problems you see in society? Do you get more worked up over things like homosexuality and gay marriage or abuse of the environment or religious terrorism than you do about sins in your own heart like pride and selfishness and lust and greed? See, the problem with fixating on the sins of society, these big things, or the, or the sins of small subgroups that you don't belong to, is that it allows you to define sin in categories that don't apply to you. It allows you to find holiness as a standard that you already meet and aren't in any danger of failing. Sin remains abstract for you, if that's you. It remains somebody else's problem. There is some comfort to be had in these sharp boundaries between the holy and the sinful, but they almost always serve, these boundaries almost always serve to insulate you from the very people that Jesus came to seek. And even worse... They tend towards the illusion that you're not just as thoroughly guilty against God 
We all need Jesus desperately, and we need him whether we realize that we need him or not, whether, whether we understand just how sinful we are or not. But we can't come to him for the forgiveness that he came to offer until we first recognize how badly we need that forgiveness. Pray to him for eyes to see your true condition clearly. Another obstacle, though, maybe your problem isn't that you don't connect well with your sin, but that that's all you connect with is your sin. Maybe you are so weighed down by your struggles with an addiction that you hate and seem powerless to resist. Maybe it's a substance abuse issue. Maybe it's an eating disorder. or Maybe it's pornography. Maybe your problem is emotional and it's rooted in broken relationships or relationships that you've broken. And maybe they've left you feeling like you're unworthy and unlovable, unforgivable perhaps. In a sense, you're right, both about the severity of your problem and about the staggering cost of forgiveness, of what it would take to make you forgivable. It's a cost that only God has the ability to pay, both because He's the one you've sinned against, and He's the only one who has the right to forgive, and He's the only one who has the ability to finally and fully deal with your sins. It is far easier to say to a paralytic, rise and take up your bed and walk and have that person healed than it is for you to be forgiven. But the same Son of Man who gave life to the limbs of that broken body has the authority and the ability to forgive your sins, even though it's far harder. And though it cost him his life, where the healing only took him a word, he gave up that life willingly and intentionally because of his magnificent grace and out of his supernatural love for you. The kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor in spirit. If you're broken by your sin, the kingdom of heaven belongs to you and to all those broken enough to recognize their overwhelming need for Jesus. Here I'm not just talking to those of you who who maybe recognize you've never come to him before for forgiveness. But I find that one of the most regular problems uh, in, in the doubt of those who claim to know Jesus is not intellectual. Does God exist? It's, it's personal and spiritual. Am I really forgiven? Have I really been saved by Jesus? In some ways, it's right for you to ask that question because our hearts are deceitful above all else. They are desperately wicked, and we fool ourselves at every turn. I'm not going to try to offer you comfort this morning by saying, you're okay, don't worry about it. I will comfort you by pointing you to the one who stands ready to forgive all who come to him. I'll comfort you by telling you not to fixate on the past and whether or not at some moment way back when you actually fully believed never to stray again. But I'll encourage you to focus on the here and the now and to believe in Jesus now. Believe in him now. Pray to him for more faith, for a more full and complete rest in his arms, and plead with him for the forgiveness that he can give and came to give. The one who comes to me, Jesus said, I will not cast out. He came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. So will you be forgiven by Jesus? Let's pray.
Your grace, O oh God, is beyond even our uh, meager ability to understand. We, we can't see it and appreciate it, much less connect with it, apart from the, the, uh, the powerful working of your Spirit to open our eyes and to give us hearts of flesh in place of our hearts of stone. And so what I ask this morning is that just, if you, just as you offered forgiveness to this paralytic 2,000 years ago, you would offer it even now right here in this room to the individuals seated here. We know that you love them, that you came to this earth not considering equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied yourself and were obedient to the point of death on a cross so that you would have the authority to forgive sins to the glory of your magnificent, unprecedented, and astonishing grace. We pray, Lord, that that grace would be active in this room even now, that your word would not return to you void, but that you would see that you would be pleased to see it active and powerful among us. Encourage us, God, with the forgiveness that is offered only from your hand. And we pray in Jesus' name.